Marcus Paul, almost a public figure. When you wake up Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the morning. Marcus Paul in the mornings, right across Australia. On the iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio apps. The biggest issues. The biggest guess. Marcus Paul in the morning starts now. Well, good morning and welcome to a brand new working week around Australia. This is Marcus Paul in the morning, live on starterfm.com.au, the iHeartRadio platform on TuneIn. And of course, maybe you're catching up via the, the podcast or Prawncast. Great to have your company. No matter how you're listening to us, we've got some news and your views on the air this morning. Thank you very much for being a part of it all. Now, some of the, uh, the issues we'll be tackling today... The New South Wales state budget will be handed down tomorrow and the positive story drops uh, keep coming. The latest, uh, strangely, an equity share situation uh, to assist home ownership. Now, it all sounds great, but it's very similar to the Albanese scheme that Liberals kiboshed ahead of the federal election. I'll talk about that in detail, but uh, the New South Wales uh, government... I mean, they initially announced an equity scheme back in February of this year, but the funding announcements for tomorrow's budget was finalised over the weekend. So, um, will it work? I think it's a great idea. Um, I've got no problems with it. I'll go through some of the fundamental um, details of the scheme. Anyway, uh, also making news, of course, another <laughs> announcement over the weekend by the New South Wales government ahead of its budget tomorrow. And this made your eyes roll just a little bit. The New South Wales Premier says it will cost around $25 million to permanently install an Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. And Dominic Perrottet defended this cost, saying it is a, quote, small price to pay for unity. Uh, Mr Perrottet also said, mind you, that he's not sure why the project costs so much, but he backed it as an important decision for state. Look, I've got no problem with uh, this happening. I can't understand why the Aboriginal flag has not flown proudly next to the Australian and New South Wales flags on the Harbour Ridge, you know, for, for a long time now. It should have been there, oh, decades ago. Anyway, uh, this is the plan, and by the end of the year, we will see the Aboriginal flag flying uh, 24-7. These days, it's up for around 25 to 30 days a year only. Special occasions and NAIDOC week and all the rest of it. Anyway, we'll talk about that issue, that story. Um, <laughs> I'll have a little poke at a, uh, a journalist who had a, a crack at a... Uh, um, an inner city labour aligned mayor over the weekend in one of the newspapers and his name is Ben Pike he wrote in the Sunday Telegraph a, a little hit piece on labour uh, labour's Darcy Byrne who apparently owes around $15,000 council rates from a deceased estate mind you owned by his parents the estate's worth $2.5 million and for some reason, old pikey boy, the journalist, decided to link Prime Minister Anthony Albanese in this non-issue because <gasps> he and Darcy Burner mates. Shock horror. 
Anyway, I'll save you from reading that utter bullshit story and I'll fix it in one sentence for you here and talk about it very soon. But the Inner West Mayor is paying off his dead parents' council debt as per the regulations and will settle all accounts once the property left to him will be sold. It's worth around two and a half million bucks. So he's got no problems paying off the $15,000. Oh, and by the way, he's also a Labor-aligned mayor in the federal electorates of the new Prime Minister, who, by the way, has stuff all to do with this non-story. So there we go, it's fixed. Look, Ben Pike needs to perhaps, as I mentioned on social media, watch Friendly Geordie's piece on the terror squad's targeting of him. Now that, Benny, is a story, not the rubbish you wrote yesterday. Okay, so we'll go through all of those. Um, What else has been happening? Uh, A little bit more, too, in relation to the energy crisis. I think uh, Chris Bowen has done a pretty damn good job, you know, against all of the sky falling in crazies, particularly those on the right who, for whatever reason, want to tell us that we can't heat ourselves over the coming, you know, cooler days and nights of what's left in winter. Don't pay any attention to those doomsayers. It's just those on the far right that are still, you know, still got their knickers in the knot because they've lost the federal election. Uh, substation fire down in the Illawarra was cause for concern over the weekend, but it wasn't going to have any effect on the electricity supply. So that's all fine. I'll go through that. We'll have the latest news, of course, as it happens from the team at Air News. We'll go to uh, uh, the news on the half hour uh, for uh, some headlines and then on the hour, of course, a full bulletin and some great tunes to get you in the mood on a Monday morning. So let's get into it. Marcus Paul in the morning, right around Australia. Monday morning. All right, let's get into it. Uh, One of the big stories I saw yesterday that was creating a bit of a storm on social media was the one about the Aboriginal flag now to be flown 24-7 on top of Sydney Harbour Bridge. Now, I can't understand why it hasn't happened before, but I mean, I know it has once or twice and on, you know, numerous special occasions, but I haven't got a problem with the Aboriginal flag flying at all times on Sydney Harbour Bridge. You know, put up another flagpole and run three flags. The New South Wales flag, the Australian flag and the Aboriginal flag. Anyway, the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet says $25 million to fly the Aboriginal flag on Sydney Harbour Bridge is a, quote, small price to pay, unquote, for unity. There we go. The estimated 20... I mean, this is what raised my eyebrows. Uh, $25 million is what uh, the government has set aside in the state budget to permanently install the Aboriginal flag on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. Now, the Premier says it's a small price to pay for unity. Mr Perrottet said he's not sure why the project costs so much, but backed it as an important decision for state. The state government announced that costings to fly the flag year-round on the Sydney landmark will be included, as I said, in Tuesday's budget, tomorrow's budget. Funds have been allocated to install a 20-metre-high third flagpole at the bridge's summit with the aim of being completed by late this year. At a press conference over the weekend, Mr Perrottet was asked how the government arrived at the $25 million price tag. I don't know, but it does, apparently, was the Premier's response. 
He said, I'm even surprised it takes this long. I mean, I made the announcement a while ago. And the first brief that came back was, that's what it takes. Two years to do. I'll go to Bunnings myself and climb up there and put the pole up. But apparently it does. Apparently that's the costing. And I think that it's an important decision that we've made. I think it brings unity to our country. And I think it's a small price to pay for that unification. Well, look, former Premier Gladys Berejiklian had resisted calls for the flag to be permanently flown during her tenure. God knows why, but she did. The plan was formally announced by the government in February and came after a petition led by Indigenous artist Sherry Toker, which gained some 177,000 signatures. The Aboriginal flag will fly alongside the Australian and New South Wales flags atop the iconic structure. About time too, I think. Uh, it had previously only flown, as I mentioned at the start, for just a, you know, on special occasions, around about 19, 20 days per year. The government said complex engineering is required to support the new six-storey flagpole and nine-metre by four-and-a-half-metre flag. Uh, look, I'm sure it is complex, but I'm surprised at the cost. I honestly am. Anyway, Aboriginal Affairs Minister Bren Franklin said permanently flying the Aboriginal flag was an important acknowledgement of Aboriginal cultures. He said yesterday, I'm so excited, we are one step closer to the Aboriginal flag finally being flown on the Sydney Harbour Bridge permanently, 365 days a year, seven days a week. We are incredibly proud to be working in partnership with Aboriginal stakeholders on both symbolic and practical reconciliation. Well, look, fair's fair. I think the, uh, the New South Wales government needs to be commended on coming to this decision. Why on earth a previous state government has resisted it, I'll never know. But anyway, the New South Wales Premier Dominic Perrottet says the plan is important for unity in the state and country. A third pole will be installed atop the bridge at a cost of $25 million. The government expects the project to be complete later this year. Uh, there's a post up on Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook if you care to comment. Tuesday morning, great to have you company. It is the 20th day of June. Marcus Paul in the morning. Please give us a like and follow on our Facebook page. You'll find plenty of comments uh, there from our listeners and followers that you can also get amongst. And give us a subscribe to as well, Marcus Paul in the morning on YouTube. Well, uh, with the New South Wales budget being handed down within 24 hours... Uh, there's been a string of announcements in the last week. Of course, uh, the Premier, if he had his chance, would scrap that stamp duty, uh, a tax that he says benefits nobody. Although, uh, you know, he does fail to mention, of course, that he'd replace it with a, a land tax ongoing. But anyway, in another measure over the weekend, the state government, ahead of its budget, announced a $780 million shared equity scheme in order to somehow address housing affordability in New South Wales. Now, straight away I was feeling a little bit uh, perplexed by this because wasn't it the Liberals, I know at a federal level it was certainly, who, you know, kiboshed Anthony Albanese and Labor's plan? Well, this is almost exactly the same. 
Anyway, uh, frontline workers, single parents and older single people will be eligible for a shared equity scheme to assist in buying a home under this New South Wales state government plan. It will commit $780.4 million to the program in tomorrow's budget which, as I say, closely resembles a policy brought to the federal election by Anthony Albanese. It would see the state government contribute up to 40% of equity for a new home and 30% for an existing property. Frontline workers, including teachers, nurses, police officers, single parents and single people aged 50 years and over, would be eligible for the shared equity scheme. Now, Premier Dominic Perrottet said New South Wales's scheme would run as a two-year trial and work hand-in-glove with the federal government's program. He said over the weekend, Dominic Perrottet, we want to make sure that people right across New South Wales have that opportunity because we know home ownership is crucial to growing wealth. Now, Mr Perrottet said it would be part of a suite of measures that would also include a push to boost housing supply. Initially, the government will help with the purchase of 3,000 homes per year. But Mr Perrottet said that could be expanded if the program was successful. The Premier expected his government's plan would double the number of homes available to the eligible cohort. People will need to earn a maximum of $90,000 individually or have a combined income of $120,000 per year to be eligible. They will have to contribute a 2% deposit under the scheme on homes worth up to $950,000 in metro areas and up to $600,000 in regional areas. Now, metropolitan areas include obviously Sydney, but as well as regional areas, the Central Coast, Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, the Mid-North Coast and the Illawarra. Treasurer McKean says around 60% of properties in the state's housing market fell within that price range. Mr Keane said older singles, particularly women, were too often falling through the cracks when it came to housing and the government's plan would help them back on their feet. It's a huge area of growing social need. More housing affordability measures are expected to be announced as the state government prepares to hand down its budget tomorrow. Mr Perrottet has flagged his desire to scramp, as I mentioned last week's uh, stamp duty fees, which he has described as, quote, the worst tax any government can have. He has said, however, he does need federal support in order for that to happen. The Premier said his government's shared equity scheme leveraged off its Commonwealth counterpart, a plan, of course, that was admonished by the former Morrison government. Now, asked if his federal Liberal colleagues would change their tune, Mr Perrottet said, they'll see the light, quote-unquote. I think it makes sense, he said. It's very easy when governments or oppositions float reform ideas for people to come out and knock it and say it won't work. I will always encourage federal governments, state governments to look at new ways of thinking, new ways of doing things and to provide great social outcomes. Now, Dominic Perrottet said last week's National Cabinet meeting was, quote, the most collaborative that he had been to. There we go. So could it be under the new Anthony Albanese government that, you know, the states will start collaborating more and getting along with each other a lot better? 
Well, we can only hope so. So far, the, well, it's pretty obvious. So far, things are looking a lot better than they were under Scott Morrison. Marcus Paul in the morning. Nice to have your company on this Monday as we get into it. Uh, a brand new working week. It is the 20th day of June. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, uh, as you know, uh, come next month, there will be some changes to unemployment benefits from Centrelink. The federal government says they are looking to fix rather than dump changes to benefits, which have been, uh, well, I guess described as controversial. Employment Minister Tony Burke says it's too late to scrap controversial changes to unemployment benefits due to be introduced next month, so the government will look to alter the scheme instead. Now, from July, the Job Active Scheme, that's the scheme that requires people receiving job seeker benefits to apply for 20 jobs a month, well, that will be scrapped. It will be replaced by a new scheme called Workforce Australia, which will require job seekers to earn 100 points a month through applying for jobs, sitting in interviews and undergoing training. The new scheme was designed under the Morrison government and the changes have been criticised by some community advocates for being poorly communicated, leading to fear and confusion. Some people are concerned the new system could be more difficult to work under than the existing scheme. Now, Mr Burke over the weekend said while the new scheme is flawed, there is not enough time to prevent it rolling out. He said, and I quote, it's actually too late to not have a point system at all. It's about getting inside it and making it logical and making sure that when all these contracts take effect in a couple of weeks' time, we've actually got a system that helps long-term unemployed people. But Mr Burke said changes will be required to ensure the new scheme does not leave job seekers worse off. He said what the government has designed, some of it is more punitive than actually getting the job done. We want to make sure, and I'll be changing it over the course of the next week, to make sure that we can have a system that's designed to get people into work rather than some media stunt to punish some people. That's obviously a crack at the former Morrison government. I mean, the concept is right, according to Tony Burke, but there are need, or there is a need rather, for adjustments. Now, the government argues the broad concept is good, and the existing job active scheme clearly needed change. A Labor-dominated Senate committee found back in 2019 that the scheme was not fit for purpose and the requirement to apply for 20 jobs a month was hindering rather than helping people into work. Now, Labor says it supports the idea of, quote, mutual obligations that people receiving JobSeeker are required to continually compete certain tasks in order to qualify for their payments. Now, Mr Burke said the idea of broadening that idea beyond simply applying for jobs is a good one. He said being able to take into account if someone is getting a forklift licence, a driver's licence, things like that, well, they are all valid things to take into account. Now, his major criticisms of the new scheme 
are plans to send automated messages to people warning them they risk missing payments and the formula used to award points. For example, he said it would be unrealistic to expect someone to be undergoing a full-time course and applying for jobs at the same time. He said if you're doing a full-time course, be it an English language course or a course to get yourself job ready, that still doesn't get you to the 100 points required. So if you're still having to apply for other jobs, which if you apply for and then get an interview, then you can't finish your course. All right, well, like I say, there will be some changes to this. The new scheme comes into place from July the 4th, leaving the government with just a fortnight or so to make the changes that it deems immediately necessary. And of course, when it does, you'll hear about it here on Marcus Paul in the morning. Alrighty, welcome back on this Monday morning, the 20th of June. Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have your company on Starter FM, iHeartRadio, tune in, and of course, if you're listening back to us on the podcast, the broadcast. Great to have you with us. Now, uh, for those that have followed and listened to me for a number of years, you'd, you'd know that ideologically, I agree with what the, uh, the, the people at Blockade Australia are trying to do. It's just their methods that I disagree with. I just don't see uh, the point in, you know, tying yourself to a freight train or to a track or to something. You know, I just, I just don't, I know it's extreme. I understand why they do it. I just think it's unfair on people who are ordinarily going about their working lives. But anyway, Blockade Australia again have made news over the weekend with an extreme protest that apparently saw um, activists slash police car tyres during a raid on a campground at Colo. And it had police saying they feared for their lives after allegedly being surrounded, pushed and shoved at the campsite. Uh, and of course, Blockade Australia are continually promising plenty of, of action or activism over the coming weeks and months. Anyway, here's the story. Police have been left, quote, fearing for their lives after being attacked and having the tyres of their vehicle slashed during a search at the camp of protest group Blockade Australia. Officers visited the property on Putty Road Colo in Sydney's far west at around 8.30 yesterday morning as part of an ongoing effort to investigate the group who planned to carry out peak hour stopping protests across the city in coming weeks. But not long after arriving at the camp, Police alleged they were surrounded by a group of people who then damaged the vehicle tyres, preventing it from leaving. Acting Assistant Commissioner Paul Dunstan said there were between 30 and 40 people at the campsite, some of whom allegedly pushed and shoved officers, despite Blockade Australia claiming they were, quote, non-violent. Those police that were attacked by the group this morning fear for their lives. Acting Assistant Commissioner Dunstan said yesterday. They called for urgent assistance and police from all over the Sydney metropolitan area responded to assist and provide aid to those police officers. Um, he went on, I can assure you that I saw that what I saw this morning was violence from this group. Police were pushed, police were shoved, the tyres of the vehicle were either slashed or let down. On this occasion, there was certainly violence, he said. 
Now, after the incident, officers were initially able to arrest two people, while a number of others fled into the bushland. More arrests have been made, with specialist teams including Polair, the Public Order and Riot Squad, Raptor Squad and the Operation Support Group called in and a crime scene also set up. Is that a little over the top? I'm not sure. Anyway, the raid on the camp of the protest group which crippled energy supply lines and triggered law changes came after they vowed to flood the Sydney CBD during peak hour for an entire week. Now, Assistant Commissioner Dunstan said police believe the group had been planning its protests on the campsite in recent weeks. They've been practising, rehearsing and constructing items to conduct similar methods of protest that they conducted during the march activity. This is not traditional protest activity. This is, quote, criminal activity, according to the Assistant Commissioner. A New South Wales police operation, including large numbers of officers, will be carried out in the city centre from June the 27th to July the 2nd, when, of course, Blockade Australia had pledged to shut down the CBD with protest action in an unprecedented promise to cause traffic chaos. Now, in a memo sent out last week, the group said the climate crisis is here, it's time to get off the fence and join in effective resistance. Every day of the week, crowds will be flooding Sydney CBD during morning peak hour to disrupt Australia's operations. After each morning's protest, there will be debriefs to reflect and learn from the action so the next day can be even more effective. The group, who had more than a dozen members arrested after rolling protests in Port Botany earlier this year and the Hunter last year, of course, took to Facebook with a slickly edited 12-minute video in which members of the group implore viewers to join them in Sydney. The group has also hosted screening nights of the video across Australia, according to events posted on their social media. Now, the group's actions earlier this year led to the government ushering in increased penalties, including $22,000 fines and up to two years in jail given the tick of approval for those who would disrupt the morning peak. Ahead of the threatened action, Deputy Premier and Police Minister Paul Toole said there would be a highly visible police operation running from June the 27th to July the 2nd in a bid to curb the protests. Uh, now, the, of course, the Deputy Premier has called Blockade Australia economic vandals. And he said over the weekend, these economic vandals have been already put on notice. We've seen protesters jailed, fined, and some have even faced deportation. Illegal protests that cause mass disruptions affecting people's ability to get to work, school, or just go about their everyday lives will not be tolerated. Shadow Police Minister Walt Secord, well, he slammed the actions of protesters and backed the police response. He said over the weekend, the New South Wales Police have my full and unreserved support in handling the Blockade Australia protesters. These characters have the right to lawful protest on the sidewalk outside Parliament like everyone else, but they mustn't risk the safety of police and city workers or threaten people's jobs. All right, well, what do you make of it? Uh, look, again, I, I support Blockade Australia and what they're trying to do, but it's their methods and their modus operandi that I don't agree with. Marcus Paul in the morning. 
Okay, Marcus Paul in the morning. Great to have you company on a Monday. Uh, I saw this story over the weekend. It's in relation to a Sydney mayor who last year voted to jack up rates for punters and apparently owes thousands of dollars in unpaid rates himself. It's the Inner West Council's Mayor Darcy Byrne. Uh, now, um, those who wrote a story about it in, on the weekend tried to link him to uh, the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Apparently, they say that he's a, a very close friend and former... Well, he's a former staffer of Albo, I guess. Anyway, the story is he owes more than 15 grand in rates on a $2.5 million property in Balmain. The payments are outstanding from at least 2017 when he inherited the property from his deceased parents. Now, yesterday, the Sunday Telegraph wrote the popular Labor mayor was issued with further demands for payments in the past couple of months. Now, Mr Byrne pays an eye-watering 6% interest on the outstanding rates. Uh, One Inner West Council ratepayer said only last year he approved a large increase to minimum rates affecting over 35,000 units while paying no rates himself. He determines policy and penalties about rates but does not declare that he pays no rates himself, said this punter. The close relationship between the mayor and the general manager is a source of concern. Could this rates debt be overlooked or quietly written off? Says uh, one person in the paper yesterday. Now, ratepayers fork out almost $125,000 a year for Mr Burns' salary. He is also a regularly chauffeur-driven to council events. His closeness to Anthony Albanese extends to holding a ratepayer-funded civic ceremony for Mr Albanese next week at the Marrickville Town Hall. Now, Mr Byrne yesterday defended his debt, saying that he intends to pay it when the property is eventually sold. He said yesterday, and I quote, In 2017, my mum passed away, leaving a rates debt on her home. The property is derelict and has remained empty since then. I haven't lived at my deceased parents' home for around two decades. Now, Mr Byrne said he'd been trying unsuccessfully to obtain the deeds to the house, which he says he is still not in possession of. He said this had prevented the property from being put up for sale. Given the delay in the processing of the deceased estate, I have entered into a payment plan with the council, which includes paying the historic rates debt plus interest when the property is sold. This is a normal council process for dealing with deceased estates. Well, if this is the case, why the hell is this a story? Or is it just an excuse for, hang on, who's the journo? Let me have a look here. Ben Pike uh, from News Corp to have a crack at a Labor councillor. Probably that's what it's all about. Anyway, uh, like I say, Mr Byrne says he'd been trying unsuccessfully to obtain the deeds to the house, which he's not in possession of. He said his parents had... uh, He said this had prevented the property from being put up for sale. Uh, The debt is uh, an historic one from his parents, who are now both deceased. And... Entering into a payment plan is something that is a normal council process.
Okay, so this Ben Pike decides he wants to not only have a crack at this council, uh, the councilman, the mayor, Darcy Burns, but also try and link him to Anthony Albanese. Very good, Ben. Neighbouring properties on the street have been sold for $4.8 million and $3.1 million, according to a property expert and records. Well, that's great because, obviously, when Mr Byrne sells the property when he's able to, considering it's his from his parents, his deceased parents, I'm sure he'll have no problems whatsoever paying back the $15,000 in rates, considering... What he inherited is worth around two and a half million dollars. Wow. At least if you're going to do a hit job story, Ben, at least make sure it stacks up. Marcus Paul in the morning. Okay, welcome back. Monday morning, Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, hundreds of thousands of Aussies who were sold so-called defective Toyota vehicles will be able to apply for compensation, we're told, from today. This all comes after a federal court judgment handed down last April that found more than 260,000 Toyota vehicles were defective when they were sold. The court back then found Toyota Hilux, Prado and Fortuna vehicles sold between October the 1st, 2015 and April the 23rd, 2020 were sold with faulty diesel particulate filters, DPF, okay? Lawyers alleged the faulty filters decreased the car's fuel efficiency, caused foul-smelling emissions and increased the wear and tear on engines. In fact, the court found the defect led to a 17.5% reduction in the value of the affected vehicles at the time that they were actually sold. It also found Toyota had engaged in misleading or deceptive conduct in marketing and selling the cars. Well, as a result of this, even though they are launching an appeal, if unsuccessful, Toyota could face Australia's largest ever compensation payout. Partner with law firm Gilbert and Tobin, Matt McKenzie, said the federal court's decision was significant and could leave Toyota footing an historically large bill. Mr McKenzie told the ABC, It's one of the few instances of the federal court exercising its power to award aggregate damage. An estimated 260,000 drivers purchased defective Toyota Hilux, Prado and Fortuna vehicles in the time period, with an expected average compensation payout of around 10.5 grand per vehicle. Toyota could in fact be facing a total compo bill of more than $2.7 billion. Mr McKenzie said it will depend on how many group members register their interest. If a significant number of those group members do come forward, then there is a possibility, or a likelihood actually, that this will be the largest compensation payout in Australian history. Now, of course, there is a potential delay on payouts as Toyota are fighting the court ruling. They have committed to opposing the federal court's decision, stating in a press release it would lodge an appeal. Now, Toyota's appeal includes challenges to the factual and legal basis for the award of damages, particularly in circumstances where many of the group members did not experience the faulty issue, the statement read. Toyota also stated it will continue to offer free-of-charge repairs to any vehicle owners affected by the DPF issue. 
Now, Mr McKenzie said while his firm was committed to defending the appeal, compensation could be delayed by the legal action. There won't be any payouts until that appeal has been determined, he said. It turns on the availability of the parties and of the full court, but it's not expected for that to take somewhere in the order of 12 months. Toyota Hilux, Prado and Fortuna owners wanting to register their interest to receive compensation under the judgment can do so from 10 o'clock this morning, we're told, through the online portal. Marcus Paul in the morning. Welcome back. Monday morning. It is the 20th day of June. Great to have you company. Uh, Now, the Russian government has accused around 100 Australians, including journalists and mining magnates, of promoting a, quote, Russophobic agenda. And as a result, they've been blacklisted. The Russian government says... It is sanctioning a further 121 Australian citizens, including business people, army officials and journalists. Russia's foreign ministry last Thursday night said the move to bar entry to the Australians was in response to Australian government sanctions against Russian individuals put in place following the Russian invasion of Ukraine back on February the 24th. It accused those on the list of promoting a, quote, Russophobic agenda here in Australia. Names include ABC Chair Ida Buttrose, News Corp Co-Chair Lachlan Murdoch, South Australian Premier Peter Malinuskis and Defence Force Chief General Angus Campbell, alongside various business people, newspaper editors, academics and think tank heads. Okay, I'm just wondering whether any of these people would actually, you know, even dare dream of travelling to Russia. Uh, Media personalities, including Stan Grant, Andrew Bolt and Liz Hayes were included, as well as Altassian co-founders Mike Cannon-Brooks and Scott Farquhar. Mining magnates, Andrew Twiggy Forrest and Gina Reinhart, well, they're also on the naughty list, as well as Nine Entertainment Group Chair Peter Costello and Meriton Apartment Developer Harry Trigoboff. Those mentioned on the list are barred from entering Russia indefinitely, the foreign ministry said. It added it could expand the blacklist as Australian governments uh, do not seem inclined to abandon its anti-Russia policy line and continues to produce new sanctions. Now, Russia describes the incursion of its forces into Ukraine as, quote, a special military operation to disarm and de... what is it? Denazify its neighbour. That's a different way of basically saying that they're invading the Ukraine. And, of course, Ukraine and its allies have rejected all of this as absolute and total nonsense. Now, Australia in May sanctioned more than 70 Russian politicians and more than 30 local officials in the eastern Ukrainian separatist regions of Donetsk and Luhansk. And this obviously is Russia fighting back. I'm just wondering, does anybody out there really care? Marcus Paul in the morning. You can leave your comments on our Facebook page. Uh, Of course, give us a subscribe on the YouTube channel and also follow our Prawncast. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Marcus Paul in the morning. As we know, energy and the cost of electricity prices have been front and centre in the media cycle over the last week or so. And 
people down in the Illawarra, south of Sydney, that's the Wollongong region, uh, they were obviously quite fearful when news broke of a, a massive substation fire at a place called Yalla, uh, an operation there run by Transgrid. Uh, the fire, I think, has finally been put out. Uh, it was a massive fire. And an investigation is underway into the cause of this fire in the substation just south of Wollongong that resulted in millions of dollars in damage. Now, at around 3pm on Saturday, one of four transformers at the Yalla substation failed, causing multiple explosions which started an oil fire. Approximately 60 fireys responded to the incident which occurred two kilometres from the Talawara power station. Now, they managed to contain the blaze and secure some 100,000 litres of oil, thank goodness. The facility's operator, which is Transgrid, are now investigating the exact cause of the mechanical failure. There will be an investigation process that any asset failure goes through, Transgrid's General Manager of Maintenance, Ian Davidson, said. With this particular incident, it's still too early to speculate what the exact cause was. Now, uh, they did say that the fire at the transformer down there at Yalla would not lead effectively to any power outages, uh, which was the initial fear, of course. Uh, that's for the Illawarra and South Coast region, of which, you know, uh, there are around about three to 400,000 people. So Transgrid will now begin the process of replacing the destroyed transformer. I think it's going to cost them, the whole thing's written off. It'll cost them at least $10 million. That's how much the damage is. The unit that failed is definitely a write-off, according to Mr Davidson. It is a catastrophic uh, damage. Uh, and the immediate surrounding infrastructure has also been destroyed. It will take a replacement program, civil rebuild and replacement of minor equipment surrounding it. Uh, they estimate the replacement project would cost between 6 and $10 million. Now, the Australian energy market operator confirmed the fire had no impact on the electricity supply for New South Wales residents. The three remaining transformers will continue to supply power while the damaged unit is replaced. The substations have multiple units, so they'll have three other transformers that have the same capacity down there, which will continue to supply the local area. They'll now begin uh, to start the work that will replace the failed unit with one of their strategic spares. The incident is not believed to have been the result of a, a recent increase in electricity demand as well, is what they've said. Anyway, it was a big substation fire and you know it did cause some, <laughs> some concern down there in the, the South Coast region over the weekend. Marcus Paul in the morning. Yeah, welcome back. Monday morning, the 20th day of June. As you know, last week I was a, a little crook. I, uh, I had some laryngitis, but I wasn't the only one feeling a little under the weather. More than 17,000 people across New South Wales alone woke up feeling sick last week. But as it turns out, they didn't actually have COVID. They had FOVID. F-A-U-X-Vid. <laughs> it seems rather than being 
Latecomers to the pandemic, they'd fallen victim to an early and particularly nasty flu season, which apparently is what I had. COVID and the flu have almost identical symptoms, with testing one of the only two ways to differentiate between the viruses. I took two or three of those rapid antigen tests last week. They all came back negative. Anyway, the other is the amount of sympathy and understanding the sufferer receives. While almost all of the 17,000 FOVID sufferers had the same sore throats, nasty coughs, fever and aches and pains, they lacked that crucial extra line on the rapid antigen test like I did, yes. That meant that when they told family, friends and work colleagues, they were more likely to get sneers than sympathy. It also meant there were no regulations stopping them from going to the shops or school or to work or under buses and trains. I mean, I would have gladly fronted up to do this thing every day last week, well, the last few days, except that I had no voice. I mean, anyway, it all meant the rest of us could also pick up a case of fovid. <laughs> I'm just wondering, have you had the flu? I don't want to call it fovid anymore. Anyway. The New South Wales Health, uh, Dr Jeremy McInerney, said it was the COVID restrictions that had ironically caused a more severe flu this year. Dr McInerney said over the weekend we've been experiencing this because for the last two years we haven't had a real flu season. We've got people not having the normal immunity they get from having a previous infection, so we're seeing a lot more people susceptible to influenza. New South Wales Health reported 17,404 flu cases in the week to June 11, with the majority of those influenza A. The figure accounts for 30% of the state's infections so far this year, but flu cases remain far fewer than COVID, of which there were, last week across New South Wales alone, 42,060 cases. In New South Wales, 217 people were admitted to hospital with a flu-like illness. Half of those were aged 65 years and older. Southwest Sydney Local Health District recorded the most flu cases, with 15% of the state's total. Infections have run rampant among young people, with 5 to 19-year-olds accounting for around 40% of the cases, we're told. Matraville mum of five, Paula Turnbull, said some of her kids had already experienced a bad flu this year. She said, I've got three sisters who are nurses and one who's done COVID nursing. She just said the flu is far worse at the moment than COVID. So can you please all get vaccinated? So we did. Anyway, uh, they tell us that only around 2.7 million people in New South Wales have been vaccinated against the flu this season. I don't know, maybe we are a little fatigued. Uh, we've had enough of getting a jab in the arm. Anyway, this is despite the state government making the jab free for everyone during June for the first time. Have you had your flu vaccine? Terry White Chemmart Chief Pharmacist Brenton Hart says that he feared, here we go, he feared many people were, quote, vaccine fatigued after three rounds of the COVID jab. Well, that's probably right. Marcus Paul in the morning. Well, that's
that's it for today. Thank you for your company right around Australia here on Starter FM, the iHeartRadio platform on TuneIn. And, of course, if you're listening back to us on the Prawncast, the podcast, as we always say, please give it a share on your social media so we can get the word out there. We'll be back tomorrow between 7 and 9 with all the news and your views as well. Uh, in the meantime, you can catch up on any breaking stories and information. Uh, it'll be on our socials. If you haven't already, please give us a follow. Marcus Paul in the morning on Facebook. Uh, that's where most of you like to leave your comments. You can follow us as well on Twitter, that handle, at MP in the morning. Uh, and of course, we're on Instagram. And if you wouldn't mind, subscribe to us on YouTube. Marcus Paul in the morning. Some more videos dropping a little later this week as well. Enjoy the rest of today. We'll catch you again tomorrow between 7 and 9. Bye for now. 